Welcome back to the Givology Impact Series podcast, sharing the inspiration and success of social entrepreneurs and change makers around the world. My name is Olivia Du, and today we are very honored to have Travis Ning, the U.S. Executive Director of the organization Maya Impact, here with us today. Driven by the question, how far can she go, Maya Impact was started in 2007 by Theodore and Connie Ning and Mimi Schlumberger, who focused on a generation of women who faced quadruple discrimination, poverty, being female, female, rural, and Mayan. Since 2008, Maya Impact has been very successful, developing a widespread network of partners in Guatemala, creating a program for indigenous females called Girl Pioneers, and in 2017, opening an impact school for grades 7 through 12. Today, we will be able to gain a deeper look into the inspiring story of empowerment through Maya. Welcome to Givology, Travis. How are you today? I'm great, Olivia. Thank you. Um, let's start off with the first question. Just in general, what drives your organization and what is your mission? Maya's mission is to unlock and maximize the potential of young women to lead transformational change. And as you mentioned in the intro, the big question for us is how far can she go? And what would happen if talent really met its commensurate opportunity? And so where we're doing this is in Guatemala and in rural Guatemala, where it, often Guatemala scores last, if not second to last, in the gender equity measurement. Um, it's an indices that comes out every year. Guatemala is always right there at the bottom in the Americas. And that's a measurement of political and economic participation along with access to health and education. So at the bottom of that bottom are indigenous women. And really we unfortunately could be able to stack them up against any population on earth and really come out pretty poorly in terms of levels of vulnerability. And so in our context, uh, just about 10% of girls and in, in from the Mayan rural context complete high school and over half are married or mothering by the time they're 20. So there's very much a, a set cycle of, of, of poverty and exclusion that's in place. And so what Maya is trying to do is disrupt that cycle and to really go boldly kind of where no other organization has gone in terms of maximizing that potential. So what drives us um, are these core philosophical concepts that really define everything we do. Um, the first being an inch wide, a mile deep versus the whole sort of scattergun approach. We really believe that by focusing really intensive services on, on a select generation of girl pioneers, they are gonna be the ones that really bring about macro level change. Uh, we also are firm believers in local leadership and implementation for pretty much any direct service we provide. Given our context in rural Mayan Guatemala, where Spanish is a second language, this is almost by necessity. We, we couldn't implement this with a bunch of foreigners, even if we tried. Um, but seeing that that mirrored staffing is, is such a beautiful thing when a young woman can see herself in the person talking to her, we just know that that leads to more sustainable change and replicable results. Um, we also have had and learned the hard way over time that Maya is not for everyone, whether that's... Um, uh, even for some young women, it's just not a good fit for them. And for some donors, it's not a good fit for them. Um, we've had we've had difficult conversations with bargain shopping donors who really want the, the most for their dollar. And that's not where we're about. That's not what an inch wide mile deep is. Um, so just acknowledging that we have limitations and we can't do everything for all people. Um, the other big piece for us is being driven by an abundance mindset. I think in the NGO community, unfortunately, our default mode is often scarcity. And that creates division, that creates ad adversary relationships with people who really aren't adversaries. And so we're really trying to model what is an abundance mindset. And I think that's something that's sorely lacking in our sector. 
Um, finally, this piece of being congruent of what we say is what we do, and what we do is what we say, and trying to do that at every single level of our organization. So those are our, our core philosophies that we hopefully are driven by each and every day. Thank you. Um, could you explain more about the abundance mindset that you've mentioned? Sure. I find that, um, I don't know what it is, and I've been doing this for a while now, and it just seems like the default mode between with when you have two organizations um, is often scarcity that, that let's say you, Olivia have an organization. I have one who, and as well. And there's this assumption that it's a zero sum game and that there's only $1 on the table and either you're going to get it or I'm going to get it. Um, but there's rarely this other assumption, which is, well, if we work together, I bet there's more. Um, or if you thrive in your organization, I can thrive too. Mm-hmm. It, it's unfortunately driven, I think sometimes by bad donor behavior, but also just by, our own kind of flawed, flawed sense of competition. Um, it's particularly in a place like Guatemala where as recent news headlines would suggest, we have a real problem here in Guatemala and we need all hands on deck. And if I have a, a colleague at a different organization who's also got a great school serving equally vulnerable youth, oh yeah, you should be going for it. And I'm gonna steer as many resources your way as, as humanly possible. And if you thrive, well, I, I, that'll that'll make everyone's life better. I think it's more faith in karma. This is the way that we see it versus this, it's mine or it's yours, but it can't be both. Okay, thank you. Um, could you tell us a bit about Maya's history? How did the organization get started and how has your work evolved over time? So we started, like you said, in 2007 um, and really got a, a, leap, a leapfrog jump because a lot of the founding board and even some of the original staff came out of the microcredit movement. And that's a, that continues to be a really prevalent intervention here in Guatemala. And we're from believers and big fans of it. Uh, and so the founders spent decades in that. And it did bubble up a few key questions for us as an organization um, and just observations. One is that microcredit is amazing, but it also has, is predicated on the idea that everyone's an entrepreneur and, and that's just not true. Um, another question we we had with it was you know oftentimes the micro lenders can access a woman once she's already formed her family is married and has children and oftentimes that happened in circumstances going back to the cyclical poverty where maybe she's you know late 20s and already has five kids and she's illiterate and maybe she married an alcoholic so the ceiling in spite of her talent her drive her ceiling is low and it's going to take so much more for her to get through that so what if we went a generation before that. That's what really birthed the whole idea of Maya. What if we caught that same woman, but could go back in time and catch, catch her a half a generation before, what would she be capable of then when she turns 30 and got a microloan? Um, and so that's really the, the birth question of the organization. It started ba- fairly basic. Um, here, the transition rates between sixth and seventh grade for young women in rural Guatemala are really bad. So it was a logical place to start was helping girls financially go from six grade, which is the completion of primary school, to seventh grade, which is when middle school starts. That's just a huge dropout rate. Um, and so that's how it began. Pretty straightforward. Like, oh, you don't have money to go to school? Well, here's a partial scholarship so you can. And the idea of building this organization around being really nimble and responsive to evol- the evolution of the landscape, and quickly it evolved, that it's more than just money that holds girls out of school. Money's a big factor, but it's not the only factor. And Soon enough, we realized, wow, there's a lot of social pressure around this girl, and her family's not on board. And so we were just seeing that 
maybe seventh grade would be doable. But the further she got along, the more difficult her path gets. And if we aren't more comprehensive in our programming, she won't make it. And so it evolved into a more of an ecosystemic approach, which by that I mean taking into consideration the entire ecosystem of each girl, that being her social, her social aspect, her family, her school, and obviously herself. And, and navigating and putting together uh, a coalition of actors around each girl. And so the role of the mentor evolved, and that's a woman from the same community who speaks the same language, who is just a half a generation ahead of this girl, who can help guide that path and really formalize her social capital, the support network that she's gonna need to sustain her trajectory. And so that's the program that actually is just about to complete this year. We ran that all the way from 2008 till this year. And those, the last cohort of girls are in seniors in high school now, and they're about to graduate. So that's been for several hundred girls and families, that's been the, what has been Maya for them for all these years. And in 2017, um, we opened up our own school. And that's really a response to the another huge variable that came across our path. Like family, this variable had to do with academics. And in Guatemala, the, the public school system is extremely deficient. And this, just to rattle off some data of last year's high school graduates nationally, um, just 12% were considered proficient in math. And that's at a national level. So when we take that to a rural setting where it's sort of the end of the road, we can safely assume that it's zero percent of high school graduates are math proficient. So how are these girls, in spite of their talent, going to find gainful employment and prosperous lives if they're not academically prepared to fill those positions? So we've tried we tried it upside down and sideways different ways to to address the academic variable without actually opening our own school. But finally, there was an epiphany where um, some of our staff from rural Guatemala went to a handful of charter schools actually in the US and saw different definitions of school. Not even the definition that we thought out, but just that you could really define that box however you wanted to. And, and so based on that epiphany, we started designing. And we started around 2013 to map out what a school would look like that's specifically designed for rural indigenous girls and the goal of connecting them with 21st century opportunities. It's really stepping over this massive divide that's been in Guatemala since, it's, since the Spanish arrived here hundreds of years ago. And, and so that's been the challenge is to blend the two, this idea of this ecosystemic approach and mentorship with a 21st century academic experience. And that's what we're trying to blend together in our impact school. So we opened that in 2017. And we're about halfway through. We have, we're finishing up our ninth grade year right now, and it'll build out from seventh through twelfth, and we'll eventually have 300 girls and families in the school. Um, so just this year, we opened our, our own building, which was a massive step forward for us. Um, and on the horizon, we're asking ourselves, great, it's working. Um, we, we, what are we going to do as far as changing the system? We know that one school and 50 graduates a year is amazing but it's not ultimately gonna change the entire landscape of Guatemala. And that's the next task we have to figure out. And it goes back to that abundance mindset of how can one school be a catalyst for more systemic change? And it's, in our opinion, through really bringing people together. It's being that, and not being a scarcity mindset, but rather really focusing on creating coalitions and networks and maximizing our success and maximizing the success of other organizations to leverage everyone's best practices and make them widely available. So that's our next year. But in the meantime, we're opening up. The immediate short term is to build out our high school, which opens up in January. 
Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how Maya selects its program beneficiaries? I know you mentioned um, like several hundred girls that you've seen graduate through high school and your school. Um, can you also explain how it works with the community? Sure. Like, it goes back to that piece I mentioned at the beginning where we just acknowledge that we're not for everyone. And I think that has been a really painful realization um, that has come over time where when we first started, we were trying um, to, to kind of be all things for all people and accept all girls that needed a scholarship or needed support through secondary school and realize that that just stretches us way too thin and we weren't able to achieve sustainable results or impact. And it was devastating to acknowledge that we, we really have to narrow down on the specific set. And so our focus on this with the school in particular is, is on outliers. We want really early adopters and we need girls and families who are really willing to buy into a concept and really based on faith versus empirical evidence because no school's ever done what we're trying to do, which is to catapult over two to three generations um, in one generation. So with that in mind, we have a really rigorous selection process for our seventh grade girls. We start recruiting in sixth grade at the beginning of the year and start promoting within public schools, asking teachers and asking community leaders, hey, which, which of the girls in your community are high aptitude and high talent with, with really motivated families that are not gonna be able to continue their schooling beyond the sixth grade? And we start to narrow it down. So each girl who applies, and it's a written application and an essay, um, she gets three home visits from mentors who, again, are all Kachikel Mayan women um, who go to her home, and they evaluate both the girl's drive and sincerity of her answers as well as the family. And a huge piece for us is the father. Um, we, more often than not, a mom is totally on board, and that's not at all challenging or, or questionable. Sometimes dads are, because this is a massive leap for him. Girls marry and leave at age 15 very often, so for him to alter that path is a pretty radical departure, and that requires, on his part, a ton of courage, because the social pressure on him is gonna be immense, because our school operates at two and a half times the, the rate in terms of the number of hours of school is very intense for us. And so this, his daughter's gonna be perceived differently in that community. She's gonna be walking to and from school alone. And that's a big deal in this context. Girls don't walk alone. And adolescent girls don't do what his daughter's about to do. So we have a very rigorous vetting process that goes for six months. And then we have initial, and then the secondary six month process where it's what would really be considered a running start. These girls, these are the highest aptitude girls, but they test in around second grade in terms of their reading and math levels. So we need to try and get them going as fast as we possibly can. Um, they start way behind already and, are, and it's very difficult to teach middle school if your students don't know how to read. So we have to start them around July and get them going and reading and math um, in, in, in anticipation of the January start date. So every year we start with about 50 girls and the key for us is that we can't, we can't lose them. Once a girl has enrolled in our school, I mentioned that our pace is too fast and our, our rigor is too high to be able to onboard a girl halfway through the year. So we, make, we front end all the difficult parts to make sure that we really bring in the most talented and motivated girls and families. Um, you mentioned the school a lot and how it has a high level of rigor. Could you give me an example of like what happens throughout like one school day? So school starts around seven and it ends around four. 
And that's a little over twice the, the normal rate of a public school here in Guatemala, which is usually half day schooling. And for us, the big four academic content areas are the major ones, and that's social studies, math, science, and language arts. Um, and then we wrap around those. So we go with a block plan of 90 minute periods. Um, the part that's most fascinating and, and the most challenging of our school is that every face you see that's interacting with a girl is local. And so how does one take products of a broken education system and mold them into a really effective educator? And that's the design challenge of our school. And so we've fortunately been able to do that through really effective partnerships. Um, we've, we, we can locally source the idea of how to teach and training teachers how to engage and manage classrooms. Where we need help is in the content. Uh, the content mastery of each subject and so each educator has a content coach that is outside of Maya that with whom she works uh, several hours every week to make sure that she's staying ahead of her students um, and which is challenging because our students are, are pretty fast even if they started a second grade we're averaging two years for every one year of academics so by our goal is by the time they're ninth grade they're at grade level so that in high school we can really start to move forward uh, and so that really puts a ton of pressure on our staff to stay ahead. And it's great, it's, it's a great motivator, but it also adds to a lot of stress um, for them as they constantly are striving to stay ahead of their students. And what we've brought in is different, different, different curricula from around the world. So Spanish is not super supported uh, online with different resources, but um, Common Core for the US does have a lot of Spanish language support. So we bring in some elements of Common Core for our math program. Um, science as well, that's an international standard that we can bring in. It's a bit of a quilt in terms of what we've woven together to be able to make this all work. Um, and so far for middle school, we've been really pleased with the level of growth that we've seen. Again, the idea of averaging for every one year we need to go two. Um, so it, it does mean a level of intensity in around 210 school days, which is about 40 or 50 days more than the average school here in Guatemala goes. And in addition to them being double the time each of those days. So the dosage is certainly intense, but we also find that girls want to be at that school. Uh, I mean, their alternative is to be at home doing chores, watching their, watching their younger students or working, whether that's weaving or making tortillas somewhere else. So we've created this safe space for girls. There's certainly no complaints about the number of school days or the duration of school days. Girls don't, we have a hard time getting them leaving at the end of the day. I think just with the appreciation notion of how unique this space is for them. Thank you. Um, you mentioned how one thing that was unique about the school was that there were um, women locally that were able to teach. Um, also, I noticed that that was part of your leadership team. What is it like to co-direct with a Guatemalan leadership team? It's definitely one of the the greater privileges of that I'll have in my life. Um, I think it's, it's something that really makes Maya unique and it's extremely unusual. Um, so we know that we really work for them and we're totally dependent on their guidance for the actual implementation of the important part of Maya is what's happening every day with girls and families. And that's something that they are the absolute experts on. What, what we as internationals can provide is a high level zoom out view of what's going on around the world. Maybe there's some useful innovations or partnerships that be could be relevant to the local staff. Obviously we have better access to funding. And so that those are the two areas where we feel we contribute is 
through innovation and through investment are our specific advantages, our competitive advantages versus what they have, which is all of the innate knowledge and the culture, the cultural boundaries, which are, in my mind, if I were to step into it, it would be a landmine, but they can see it. They, they, they're from those villages. They know exactly how far to take something before it's reached a breaking point where I and the rest of the, the international team, we would be totally blind to those things. And we have no business being in those spaces where that's even a negotiation. So um, I think that this idea that it's, we all share this idea that this organization is not about one person. It's really a movement of, of distinct people. And we love the idea that this is a cultural mashup. And I think that's reflected on our team. We know that Girl Pioneers, one of the core competencies of our school is this cross-cultural code switch. And knowing that we're in an ever more interconnected world, in our context there, it's a 99% Maya Kachikel region that we, we operate in. So I think the idea that these Gropian pioneers are in a school where there is a level of international mix in, in the everyday space is also an asset, but it's certainly not the frontline point of the school's design. Thank you. Um, what do you think are some of Maya's biggest successes and in what ways are they measured? So for us, we had an epiphany, actually, I know you're from Houston and someone from Houston, from the KIPP schools of Houston came and was just one of the many people who helped us as we were mapping out the school. And the first question he had for us was, what, what's the school designed to do? And that's a really good question, pretty basic. And we thought we had a good answer, which was like, oh, it's gonna empower girls, it can have more opportunities. And, and he kept going back to the same question, like, what's it designed to do? And we're like, yeah, we already answered that. And he kept saying, well, how are you going to measure it? And specifically, how are you going to measure it? And he kept going back to that, like, what's the number? How are you going to measure it? And it has to be numeric. And, he, and we're really thankful to him because he helped us birth these four driving goals of Maya, which um, for us really define empowerment. The first is economic autonomy. So that our, our graduates of any program in Maya will earn what is the per capita average income in Guatemala, which is $4,000 a year. Doesn't sound like much, but in our context, uh, that's considered middle, middle class. The next being her family on her terms. Um, like I mentioned before, teenage pregnancy and marriage is a, is a very serious threat for us. And once those things happen, trajectory just flatlines. If, and sometimes just goes backwards. Um, so we're trying to average 25 years among our graduates before marriage and motherhood which is a big cultural deal, going back to my previous answer around these, where's the boundary with these cultural conversations? Um, but our staff knows that. And the third goal being lifelong education. So this idea that once you finish high school, that's just the start of a new phase of learning versus the completion of all learning in your life. And so we're, we're looking to average 15 years of formal schooling among all of our graduates. And then finally, the last goal is empowered to empower. It's sort of the sum of the first three. The idea that if, you've received this opportunity, you're gonna do everything you can to empower others to achieve similar opportunities. And so we've been really pleased, once we set those goals, it really helped design our school and, and really informs a lot of the curriculum, et cetera. And also just the results that we've had as that we can now measure um, from that previous program that started in 2007, 2008, uh, we see that our grads are 60% more likely to go to college compared to their neighbors that aren't in Maya or that, 50% are already at that earning level, um, or that 92.5% are avoiding marriage and motherhood, de delaying that decision until they're 25. These are 
huge data points for us that show that we're on the right path. And this was before we opened our school. So we're obviously really excited to see what would happen if they had a really robust education. How far would they go then? Again, going back to our core question. Um, hang on, I got a cough. <coughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> I've been fighting that one for a while. Uh, the other piece that's really important for us is, is this tangible proof of concept. And really what we set out to do is prove that there's talent in rural Guatemala among girls and prove that local talent is capable of unlocking that girl talent. And it's been fascinating to see how that's evolved and really taken on much more of a global spotlight. Um, this year we were recognized as the most inclusive and innovative school in the region of the Americas by the Zaid Sustainability Prize. And that was a, a great feather in our hat, but it also meant that one of our students from you know, a rural cornfield outside of Solula, Guatemala was on stage in Dubai meeting heads of state, really promoting the power of young women in rural Guatemala to the world. And it was this beautiful moment for all of us to see her across the stage and receive this prize and really indicative of what we're trying to do. And we've had girls speak at the UN and they go to New York and they're in Mexico and Costa Rica there. We're seeing it happen. Um, this exactly what our theory of change is, that if we really focus concentrated services on a few, they're the ones that are going to get seats at important tables where decisions are made. Um, and so for us, the proof of concept is constantly being proven, and that's what we're all about. And the measurement academically is now just starting to come out, and that we see our students are gaining about 170% on average per year in their math growth, which is phenomenal given what is happening elsewhere in, in our region. And we know that these skills and these, this knowledge is going to be so important for these girls to really address the crisis that's going on in Guatemala in terms of a, a failing state and this hemorrhaging of talent of 200,000 Guatemalans having left this country in the last, and just, just this year. And that's 1% of our population has left. Um, we need to create opportunities for prosperity for all people. And, and we know that these girls are the ones to do it. Thank you. Um, what do you think are some of the main challenges that Maya faces and how have you tried to address these? So since we're doing it in a little bit a different way and that's referring back to local talent, really mm -hmm. being bold, going fast, feeling this urgency and really trying to do something that no one has seen before, which is to catapult over the two to three generations. Um, we get a lot of pushback and that, that's not to, we're not surprised, but I mean, NGOs and nonprofits are supposed to manage themselves in an extremely risk-averse way. We're not really supposed to be innovative. We're supposed to know exactly what's going to happen and be able to tell everyone and every donor exactly the outcome of this intervention. And no one's ever done this before. So it's really difficult to, to answer some of these questions. And, and they're well-intended questions, but they also have, they're, not, they're not answerable. Um, so a couple of example questions is, like well, what's going to happen to these girls? You know, where are they going to where are they going to live? Are they going to wear their traditional dress? You know, are they going to continue mm -hmm. to speak their language? Who are they going to marry? You know, these are this is the first generation, and I think if you look back at history, first generations always confront a lifetime of headwinds. We know that, um, but also their the results of their of all their hard work, um, no one could have ever have ever foreseen and. And so I think that's a challenge for us in our communication and some of the expectations that we're going to know everything. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge leap for all of us, but it's one that we know has to happen. Um, another challenge for us is around funding. 
obviously we serve girls who by definition can't pay for school. So for us to, to find the resources to be able to do this. And another challenging question for us is, you know, well, how, how are you, what's your vision for sustainability? Why aren't these girls working? They should be cleaning the school, et cetera. And they certainly, we have board commissions and all the rest, but these, these girls don't have any money. <laughs> That's why they're in our school. And so it's, it's difficult to sometimes navigate that conversation when some people are saying that these girls should pay when we know they can't. I mean, the, the parents do pay the absolute maximum that they can, and that's a pretty symbolic amount. So there's definitely skin in the game. This is not a handout, but they're not providing a, a significant amount of anything in terms of the actual resources we need to run this mm -hmm. school. Um, I think another big challenge for us relates to some of that old thinking. And we need these girl pioneers, or we envision these girl pioneers to really break through a lot of these barriers and find opportunities throughout Guatemala. And there's a, a, there's a lot of, uh, of old roles and implicitly mm -hmm. supporting a program like Maya. And I think it's something that could be really engaging for the Gibology community to digest as Gibology is a network of, of great organizations and hopefully Maya being one of them. And the idea that an NGO and people who get engaged in this often feel like a hero and it feels good to help. And feeling like a hero feels amazing. I, I know, I've, I've experienced it. You probably have too, it feels fantastic, but to have that feeling requires a victim. And Maya's the antithesis of, of a victim. We, we, we create girl pioneers, girl pioneers are not victims. So creating a new conversation with philanthropy and with people who wanna get engaged in which there's an eye-to-eye -eye spirit of partnership versus a top-down power dynamic. Um, I think that's our next frontier because we need to engage these young women and these girl pioneers with the world. But often the world wants to engage with them as a hero. And that's to their detriment. That's to the detriment of girl pioneers. So Maya's tasked with figuring out a new paradigm of how to engage. And so, for example, if your school or your church group wanted to come to Guatemala, inevitably they would want to do some service. And that's fantastic. And those are really great intentions. But can we start the conversation about how, what, what, are the, what are the actual implications of that service? If you come and paint someone's house, you might feel great, but how's that person feel? Yeah, they got a fresh coat of paint on their house, but they needed, you know, some young people from, from Texas to come paint their house. Like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, so it, it, we're looking at, at a new dialogue. And I think that's just one of our challenges as we steer towards getting girl pioneers engaged in private sector jobs. We don't want handouts. We th these are earned opportunities, and we want eye-to-eye -eye partnerships with all of our with all of our networks, and that includes donors and includes people who need to give these girls the jobs. Um, so it's a it's a deep conversation, but it's one that's very prevalent and pressing for Maya today. Um, how do you think listeners can join this um, new conversation about philanthropy, or like just the movement in general? So obviously check out the website at myimpact.org and you can sign up for newsletters you can get on our social media there. We have Facebook and Instagram, just getting involved and in following what we're doing and learning more about us. Maya is making a big surge push on monthly donors. Um, we really need it now that we have a school, it's a much different level of commitment than we had previously. And occasionally we have um, a need for some pro bono work, whether that's in translation for people who speak Spanish and English or Spanish in any other language. Um, 
and widening our network out beyond just the United States. And we often have events around the US where we will show up with some of our staff or some of our girl pioneers from Guatemala and invite people to come and learn more. We have some coming up on the East Coast. So if folks are interested, they could let us know. We'll be in New York and Boston, Maine at the end of this month. Um, but it won't be the only time we, we often get around. So just invite people to, to lean in and learn more about us. Okay, um, for the last question, what do you think is the most important takeaway from Maya? So I would invite listeners to question, again, some of the conventional thinking around this type of work. Um, again, there's a lot of default modes that I think people can slip into. And I think we hope Maya can inspire people to look at things a different way. Again, this idea of incremental change is not happening fast enough. Um, and so what would it take to, to really rethink it and, and to be bold and to be less patient when it comes to achieving change? Um, and what does it take to do that? Uh, the world can't wait any longer for the incremental stuff. Um, I also would highlight to the listeners the idea of really thinking through the scarcity versus abundance mindset. And I think that's both for donors uh, and in particular for NGOs and in, in the network of Giveology to think through like, huh, like, wow, I, I think I catch myself doing it all the time, is slipping into the scarcity mindset of it's us versus them. And that that is an old thinking and really detrimental to our common missions. Um, and finally, this idea of the hero and the victim. I think um, how we engage is as important as like with what we engage with, whether that's money or time. But how we do it, I think, is much more aligned with the actual purpose of our action. And so if we're engaging with things with the outcome of trying to feel like a hero, just thinking through and, and realizing that if you have that feeling, it means you've, you've made a victim, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes. And over time, if you're looking at a program like Maya, Maya is the opposite of victims. So rethink the way we can engage and, and come to a more creative conversation around that. Thank you so much, Travis, for um, doing this podcast with Gavology today. Um, I hope the listeners are just inspired as I am about your mission. Thanks, Olivia. I really appreciate the opportunity.